Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders focusing on extraordinary teams. As always, we're virtual. I know I say that every time. I'm at home in Bucks. Vicky's in deepest, darkest Oxfordshire. Shah's over in the Netherlands. And our guest is somewhere up north, I suspect, which will become clear shortly. <laughs> Talking of guests, Shah, do you want to tell us who our guest is today and what the topic is that we're covering? I will. So let me start with the topic, Sam. So today we're going to talk about the importance of vulnerability in high-performing teams. And I'm not going to expand on that anymore. I'm going to let our guests do that for us. And our guest today is Simon Clarkson. And actually, Vicky and I met Simon quite a few years ago now. And we can accredit Simon for giving us the inspiration to do what we're doing today at the Amplified Group. So uh, Simon is the most amazing facilitator, as well as all the other things that he's going to talk about. But he came in to facilitate a meeting for us uh, when we were both at VMware, and he talked about the five dysfunctions of a team. And it really inspired Vicky and I, particularly Vicky, actually, which I'm sure she's going to talk about, to think about there is a model out there that actually can help unite teams. And we were really impressed with this. And hence, we uh, Amplified Group was born. So that's how we know Simon. Um, and so with that, Simon, I think it'd be great if you give us a little, little bit of a potted history, if you will, of, uh, of your experiences and what you're doing now. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be asked to, to speak on the podcast and the chance to uh, to share, hopefully, what might be something useful for uh, for you guys and and, uh, and your listeners. Sure, it will be. Yeah, hopefully, we'll see. In terms of career history, actually, I didn't start off in this field loosely described as developing high performance or developing high performing teams or cultures. Um, I actually started out life as an economist. I worked in investment banking for five or six years uh, as a trader. So I traded commodities, um, didn't enjoy it at all. Not because there was necessarily anything wrong with that world in itself, but just because I wasn't particularly suited to it uh, as an individual. Uh, and so therefore, as I didn't enjoy it, I didn't put my heart and soul into it. And because I didn't put my heart and soul into it, I wasn't really very good at it. So it was a decision that I'd made to sort of try and get into that field when I was a little bit younger and probably too really young to understand what I actually wanted to do in life. So, but it was a good opportunity for five or six years I kind of took one step back to take two steps forward with regards to kind of a career change uh, after traveling and, and, and uh, had always wanted to get involved in working in sport, never been quite good enough at a particular sport to play it professionally uh, meant that I, I needed to find another route. And so, so the, the sort of concept of, uh, of developing high performance and, and associated with the kind of uh, sports psychology and mental skills and so on. Um, and, and from there, uh, work, uh, worked with with an organisation for a few years, and then and then started ThinkWorks about ten years ago now, uh, to to work with both within the corporate world and within professional elite sport to help develop high performance essentially. And the model that you talk about uh, there, the the Lencioni model, the um, five dysfunctions, is something that I've I've read and read around and 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 used you know sort of quite extensively in in my work. Uh, just because I think it's such a fantastic way to to try and to help organisations think about certainly one key aspect of how they do drive high performance and how they drive progress. So Vicky, do you want to give us a little bit of background on why we've chosen this topic and why in particular vulnerability in high performing teams is so important? Yeah, thanks, Sam. So when we work with organisations and with teams, 
one of the first things we do is really try to uncover how they work together and what the dynamics are. And we use an assessment tool, which helps us understand what their personalities are. But then it also helps us understand really the five dysfunctions that Simon's just spoken about there. And we'll, we can cover those in more detail. But one of them is, and the fundamental one is trust. And when you're measuring trust, what you're looking to do is really uncover how much trust is in the organisation and trust defined by that it's a safe place to work, that you can say what you really think, that you can admit mistakes and ask for help where you need it and really show your vulnerability. And so the question out of the say 40 odd questions that the assessment asks the question that is always the lowest is being able to admit mistakes and weaknesses and really being able to admit that their vulnerabilities and, and what's fascinating about that is because we have been really programmed through our careers to not show our weaknesses um, and to not be vulnerable. And yet the, the conversations that we're having with leaders now, and actually McKinsey published uh, an article with a CEO about two weeks ago about how they were dealing with COVID. And one of the things that they said was more junior people think to show their vulnerability is a weakness, but actually the more senior you get as a CEO, showing your vulnerability is actually seen as a strength and that really builds trust. And so it's such an important topic for us. And to have Simon on here talking to us um, about his experience and what, what he's doing. And actually, I don't think we've touched on Simon, what you're doing as a day job uh, or, or what one of your primary focuses is now. So um, I'm really looking forward to digging into this with you. Yeah, it's interesting just from the things that you say there, how uh, when most people think about a lot of this with regards to the corporate world and with regards to business. And, and clearly there are lots of really, really close parallels uh, to it. And hence so I'm, you know, it gives me the ability to be able to work across both, but it's interesting the parallels that, that, that from what you've just described there in terms of junior versus senior and so on and strength versus weakness, um, uh, which, which I observe in, in, in different, in different environments, but especially in sport as well. And you really are programmed to not show weakness uh, as a professional athlete, no matter what the sport actually is, to, I mean, to use a, a football example. So one of my biggest involvements within within sport is that I work with uh, with Burnley Football Club, have done over the last seven or eight years now. It's, it's longer than uh, it's longer than I had thought actually. Um, and uh, I, I work with them in, in a couple of different ways, working with them on developing mental skills across uh, you know across the players and, and working working with the players both collectively as well as individually on, you know, things like mental strength, resilience, uh, developing, developing, you know, individual uh, performance. I also work with, with the staff on, on leadership and developing the culture as a, almost like a consultant and, and, and helping them to, to do, you know, what they do. I mean, I'm a very small spoke in, in what is a, a very hard working wheel. You know, I've, I've never met a group of people actually that, that work harder. And so, you know, not for one minute am I trying to take any kind of uh, uh, of credit for the for the incredible success that that Burnley has had relative to, you know, the budgets and the resources that they have. I mean, it is it is incredible their journey, and it's been an absolute 
pleasure to have just been a, a tiny little part of that. Um, and, and my involvement in, 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 you know, in that small way and helping them how, how they can further develop that high performance mindset, how they can develop that culture. That's sort of my main involvement. I've always, I've, I've also worked in, in other sports and with other clubs as well. Uh, I've done work in, in Formula One as well as, uh, as well as worked in cricket and so on. But that, at this moment in time, yeah, that's, that's when you, you're about to say, is that my day job? Um, it's, it's, it's one part of it. I, I spend, I spend uh, a couple of days a week uh, there at this point in time. So, uh, which is, which is fascinating for me as much as, uh, as much as hopefully a value for them. Always learning, I'm sure. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So what were your priorities when you first started with Burnley? So I want to answer this in two different ways. My priority was to build trust with the group and to build trust with the staff and with the manager, especially because, you know, without that, you can't, it's it's kind of a double-edged sword you know like we talk about kind of building vulnerability within a culture you mentioned that before um but for them to be vulnerable with me actually was probably the biggest priority to begin with you know so that you can really have honest conversations so they can open up yeah absolutely and and not just from an individual sort of one-to-one point of view where you might think of that kind of traditional uh, you know psychologist sort of um athlete relationship um, it's because we don't really treat it like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, it's probably quite an important thing to say. I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, a chartered sports psychologist. We, we take a, a sort of a softer approach to it, uh, you know, uh, than that. But so, so that was kind of one priority that I, that I needed to build that, I guess, from a, from a, from a the point of view of where the club was at at that point in time, the priority was they, they were pushing for promotion uh, from the championship and, you know, the pressure at that time was was a positive, but a rising pressure. It was mm. relatively early in the season, and 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 as well as therefore me being able to build trust, so that so that I could grow my involvement and and grow uh, my my role with with the club and help help them. I think I guess the priority for me at that time was was just to plant some seeds in in players and and staff's heads as to as to how their mental approach to the game and to training and, you know, how, how all of that could benefit them essentially. Um, and, and how they could use, you know, some, some really simple knowledge, uh, you know, to, to, to help them do what they do it, is to facilitate really more than anything else. You know, I can't you know, teach them how to play football. Clearly. You can't, can't kick the ball for them no. while they're out there. Much as you'd maybe love to. Yeah, and I would never, never pretend that I would, I would ever come anywhere close to that. So it was, yeah. it really, it was really to show them how this spoke in the wheel, yeah, could could help them uh, in terms of what they do. And, and how, was, how was there any uh, any particular resistance from people? You know, are, are they keen to get on board with anything that might make a difference, or, or is there a sort of a view that, you know, unless it's directly football related, so to speak. We have a, a particularly good uh, kind of you know, group at, at Burnley. I think that's one of the one of the one of the things that they have shown, uh, and they've really developed. And the managers work really hard to develop that kind of openness to uh, uh, and to learn, and that openness to to really want to progress. It's, it's something that's necessary for a, yeah. for a like Burnley. You know, we, we've got to we've got to push, and they have to push in, in in any direction that they can. That's going that's going to help them. So so yeah. Makes sense. So it's been an interesting 
journey for Burnley by the sounds of things. You know, up into the Premier League, back down again and back up again. Um, yeah. Can you tell us about that journey and, and you know, how, particularly how you pick yourself up and pick the team up after what must have been quite a significant knockback, I suppose? Yeah, I, well, I mean, in terms of in terms of the journey, I mean, and, and again, in sport, a lot of the, what they, what is focused upon is results. Clearly, there is a real result focus. But one of the things that, you know, in, in, in elite sport, whilst the focus clearly has to be on results, I'm not pretending that it isn't. There, there is a much greater degree of focus as well as that upon performance and the controllables and what you can actually what you can actually drive, knowing that the results they really they're they're an effect rather than a cause almost yeah yeah they take care of themselves if if you get everything else right yeah if you're doing the right things in the right way then giving yourself the best chance essentially clearly there's you know there there will still be things that happen that mean you can't ultimately of course always variables outside of your control it's the same in any field you know if you if you work in in software sales it's it's going to be the same thing they're always going to be unknowables they're always going to be uncontrollables and things that you have to accept rather than rather than influence necessarily so the Resilience, I guess, comes from that. And it, it's a huge area that the manager and the staff and the leadership of the football club, you know, really work hard on. I think also to see it as a, you mentioned journey, I'll just kind of therefore use that word. I know the word journey kind of gets used a lot. I'm not, you know, people are on a journey, but um, you, you kind of, I guess you, you have to view any one particular event uh, as a as a step on a road as to where you're ultimately trying to get to and and yeah. and, and that's the same in in the corporate world as well when you look at really high performing you know organizations that you know they have a, a, a i guess a unifying overall very emotive sense of purpose that you know where where you know the shorter term challenges that they face they can see them in the context of that overriding purpose and that overall purpose um so so that that also is a factor that um, that that helped in terms of really building resilience for the long term, um, as well as the fact that that actually, you know, what Burnley's been very good at doing is 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 recruiting really you know mentally resilient players and and um, and making sure that the that the if you like the uh, the foundation that that the team is based upon the sort of you know team beliefs and and values that that the manager wants to issue throughout the, the, the team and throughout the organization are really strong in order that you can as well then cope with, uh, with those challenging times. And, and, and it's not, it's interesting because people talk about challenging times being relegated. You know, some of the more challenging times are, you know, when we were, when I, I say we, because I've been working for them with them and for them uh, for so long now. So I, I see myself as being part of it. It's, it's difficult not to be emotively part of it. Uh, because you get to know people so well, you know, over a period of time. But um, you know, some of the some of the more stressful periods of time are perhaps, for example, when you know you're when when the team is maybe five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten games away uh, from promotion, and you sort of know that it's you know they know it's in their hands. And I mean, that's real pressure. You know, I mean, and not from the point of view of just when there's. You know, some people would think about it from the point of view of getting into the Premier League, and the second time as well. You know, we were we were clear, and it was our, it was really ours to lose uh, at that point in time. And uh, they w- they went on to win the championship uh, to to go to be re-promoted back into the league. For, you know, in that first season back in the championship. You know, that it's a very different kind of pressure that because it's not just about the 120 million as it was or the 170 million as it is now. 
that it is worth. It's 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 the individual uh, ambition that 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 it drives everybody. That you know, you, you for for the various different reasons that people want to achieve things, and and because you can only do it together as they can only do it together as a group. You know, there, there's that kind of social um and uh, reliance on each other to to deliver you know you can't you don't want to let other people down around you and so on so there's there's all sorts of different sort of types of resilience for different contexts and different situations that are needed as well as the other sort of standard one as to when when something's gone wrong or when you've lost a game and how do you bounce back from that i guess in a team sport culture is massively important right you know my experience is more in a team business than in a team sport but surely building, developing, helping them to create a culture is, is a massive driver behind their success. Yeah, you know, any team has a culture before you're trying to build it anyway. It's just a case of whether it's a, what you might call an effective or a positive or a high performance culture. So, so understanding that the kind of basics of, and, and the fundamentals of what culture really mean in, in the first place, I think are quite an important thing. So that then at an individual level, you know, people, whether it's players, whether it's salespeople, whether it's, you know, people within operations, whether it's functions, doesn't matter. Understanding how my individual behavior contributes to that culture is absolutely key. And then thinking about, well, actually, what culture, therefore, what behaviors and therefore collectively what culture is actually going to benefit us is going to help us to be more effective more productive you know and and different clubs will have different words that they might use they'll have different principles that they might operate according to but all of those are, are behaviors just in the same way that a, that a business will have different behaviors that they kind of define and, and so on the biggest mistake that organizations make i think is that they spend so long defining them that it becomes more about what people hear leaders talking about than what they actually see leaders delivering it's it becomes a window dressing exercise we have to define our culture we have to define our values we have to define our behaviors well yeah fair enough we need to define it but it's about the level of engagement that people have with that that's the key thing and it's about how leaders really deliver it's about what people see and we all know that i'm not revealing any big secrets I'm not trying to pretend that i'm kind of cleverer than anybody else but i do see it you know that they, they sort of become obsessed with the window dressing sort of you know wordsmithing element of all of this stuff and with actually giving kind of giving it fancy titles rather than just letting the people within that group actually move, move it in the direction they want to move it so much of it so much. yeah oh there is absolutely and and it's a tick box exercise versus actually and, doing it so we talk about making it muscle memory yeah and absolutely and we i talk about you know i i, I spend a lot of time especially with athletes but especially also within businesses talking about the neuroscience of of performance yeah muscle memory and and actually you know how do we form habits how do we actually drive behaviors and how do we understand the neurological changes that, that, that is required in order to do that just coming back to, to a point you're making um before that as well what's really interesting is the window dressing thing is often is often because there is a lack of ability to be vulnerable actually and I, there's no I, substance I, there to start yeah, with i think, I think yeah. it's a neat we, we we kind of sit we people sit there and say oh we need to set this down we need to define the culture we need to drive high performance and a lot of it ends up being words because they don't really dig away at what the challenges actually are and what and 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 the thought of actually having to really deliver some of those behaviors makes people feel vulnerable because the the idea of real change makes them feel vulnerable at an individual level so i, th I think often the window dressing is an effect again 
it's you know it's it's an effect of the fact that that real change requires that vulnerability at a personal and individual level as well as at a collective level yeah actually what that's just made me think of is you know you think of these people with massive egos and so often they've got a massive ego because actually inside they're insecure in the first place and and they are window dressing themselves as a person yeah most definitely and and, And you you certainly see that from a corporate perspective yeah And, and the need to go and reset our values or reset our culture or reset our whatever um is um is often born out of the fact therefore that it's kind of the easy answer right it's not working or we need to change or ooh, let's all get everybody excited again about something so you know what let's redefine it and after the third incarnation of that everybody's just see straight through it it's ridiculous yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like when you it's a bit like when you see a company pay some consultancy forty million quid to redraw their logo. Yeah. <laughs> and that's nothing against logo drawers, by the way. So obviously we're focusing on vulnerability. What's your take on vulnerability in, in building high performing teams then? Well, it's vital. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely difficult to create and, and develop and drive. It's harder to develop an elite sport than people might think. And the thing I think about vulnerability is that it's multifaceted. So, Vicky, you mentioned before, you know, the, when you sort of talk about some of the, the questionnaires and the assessments that you do, and, and the, the, you know, the, I think you mentioned that the, the, uh, the, the sort of acutest form of vulnerability is most difficult to, to, get, your, to get your head around is this uh, being able to sort of admit mistakes and weakness and so on. I yeah. see that. And that's clearly within elite sport. That's a really difical thing because, you know, ever since I say I'm a footballer, you know, ever since I've been an academy player, I don't want to admit weakness and because I might not get picked. Yeah. Right. And I know that sounds like a really childish playground thing, but that is the thing that drives. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Massively drives them, you know, and, and it's, I mean, even more so, especially when, when, the, when, a, when a footballer has got to a certain level, that, I mean, let's face it, a Premier League footballer is earning good money, right? Yes, maybe more money would drive them. Yes, maybe kudos would drive them. But I, I actually think that, you know, the biggest thing is I want to play. I want to get picked. And, and for whatever reason, that might be that then drives them their motivator. But, but so to admit mistakes and weaknesses, especially at a junior level. So coming back to the point, again, you were making, Vicky, is a really yeah. tough thing to do. They don't want to do it. You know, they, they just they often kind of want to be told what to do. I see this in lots of academies, actually. So not, so I work with many, but I also work with other academies. Um, but by academy, I mean junior, uh, yeah. kind of junior setup in a club. Um, and, and I've done, a, a, you know, a couple of interesting pieces of work where we use profiling personality profile. We do that uh, within, within, uh, within, within Burnley as well anyway. Um, uh, which is another, you mentioned it as, as part of your sort of introduction, Vicky, which, which relates into vulnerability massively. It allows us to understand uh, and allows the coaching staff and the manager, especially obviously to understand and the players, especially for themselves to understand not weaknesses, but, but their own internal stresses and, and conflicts that they might have that are clearly going to be, areas that that as a, as a as a manager or as a, a member of the coaching staff no matter their role whether you're in sports science or or whether you're the assistant manager or the manager or whether you work you know uh, as the chef or, or or somebody that works on the front desk of the training ground that you you know if, if you understand a little bit more about what makes those players tick then then it's it helps 
to to allow for that vulnerability a little bit more. Um, the, the, I, I think actually that you, you're right in that, that, especially in sport, as you get more senior in sport, whilst it doesn't happen everywhere and it doesn't happen with everybody, you, you do tend to find that the the higher the level, the higher the uh, the level that a player reaches, the more willing they actually are to be to be vulnerable. And actually, there's there's a chicken and egg with that as well. Because perhaps even the two greatest players ever to have played the game, uh, you know, certainly one of them, Ronaldo. You hear lots of stories about Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, just desperate to get better, desperate to learn, hardest working person on the training ground. And 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 I, you know, from from the experts who I work with within football, as in the manager and the staff and the players, you know, I, I kind of, I'm not an expert in football. I don't pretend to be. Um, it actually is not a bad thing because I can make myself vulnerable because I can ask the, I can ask the stupid question, you know, well, why, why would you do that that way? Or, you know, is it, could we not do this? And, and, and sometimes I will, you know, I'll get it back. No, no, we can't really do it that way, but it, I'm, I'm allowed to be vulnerable because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, pretend that i'm an expert almost surprising so, surprising how often the stupid question actually ain't really all that stupid yeah and, and, it, and it's great and if it's once out of ten that it's not that stupid and actually yeah. it drives actually a really good answer fantastic you know maybe nine out of ten times it's mm, yeah it, it perhaps yeah. was a stupid question and, and actually now that i understand yeah okay i realize but but again if you've got the ability to be vulnerable that allows you to ask the stupid questions. So I guess, sorry, I'm in a very long winded way. What I'm getting to is there's lots of forms of vulnerability. There's the vulnerability to be able to admit mistakes and weaknesses and the culture that helps you do that or not. There's the vulnerability. And, and even then there's, there's a kind of social vulnerability across your peer group with that, as well as the normal kind of traditional hierarchical vulnerability of, you know, I don't, I don't really want to talk about mistakes because I might not get picked or I might get dropped or, or whatever it might be. And that's the same within a business as well. You've got vulnerability of taking on board feedback. So the receiver, you know, of, of information has to make themselves vulnerable. There's, you know, there's vulnerability of, of being sat in a room where I'm not the main protagonist of a discussion, but I hear a discussion taking place and it makes me feel vulnerable because maybe I feel kind of sorry for my mate sat at the other side of the room. So I kind of want to step in and go, whoa, 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 whoa. It's, it's not really his fault or her fault. It's, that's kind of all of our faults. Well, if it's all of our faults, then it's clearly none of our faults. So we need to actually figure out, figure out really what happened. It's not about anybody's fault. Um, you know, and, and so pre-existing conditioning and perceptions can drive even that kind of behavior. So it's, it's, I just find it fascinating, this concept of vulnerability and the, the ability, therefore, to have the right kinds of conversations and, and discussions that drive progress uh, are, are just vital for driving high performance in a culture. Sorry, very long-winded answer. You know, I think giving Ronaldo as, a, as an example and the way you described him, playing it back to you was, you said... He just wants to learn and he just wanted to get better. And everything you hear about him from insiders as well. Absolutely. That, that is a quality that he demonstrates in, you know, in, in bucketfuls. But to, so then taking that back into the sports world or the, uh, the corporate world, if you can see that actually there is a benefit from you being able to admit your weaknesses because it means that you're going to get better and then it means the business and the, or the club is going to get better. Having that as, as ingrained in there has to be led from the top. Absolutely. Yeah. If you don't do it from the top, then uh, how can, well, there's no example being set. And, and, and that, that actually 
it, it's slightly circular this, but but in, in, in and of itself, that makes people automatically shut down and want to be invulnerable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. it does. So, so, where, so although um, Lencioni talks about vulnerability-based trust, what we are really aiming for is providing a, an environment where it is safe to be vulnerable. Yes, it's a key aspect. And, and I think the other thing to, to bear in mind is that you never get there. There's no kind Great of zero point. or 100%. It is a consistent, constant siege. Yeah. And there'll be pockets in any organization where it doesn't exist and pockets where it does exist. And, and you know, where it does exist, you, you still have to kind of pursue that over time. And, and, it, and it can be damaged as well. So it's not just a straight line. Once we've got it, we've got it. Clearly, you can no. go this way as well at the same time. It's an ever-moving feast. Yeah, and that's exactly why we talk about the importance of organisational fitness. You have to keep working and training to keep your fitness up. And it's exactly the same with a high performance team. If you don't keep working and keep a focus on it, then you're not going to remain that high performing team. And you have to keep on making sure that that team is absolutely optimised in the way that it works together. And I was speaking to a leader a week or so ago, and I was telling him about another team that I was working with and saying that it was great that they'd recognised that this was part of their day job. And he said, Vicky, it's not part of the day job. It is the day job. Yeah, another aspect is a culture of progress, which involves a number yeah. of other aspects, things like growth mindset and so on and so forth. But, you know, you have an ability to learn or make progress and, and it's about your rate of progress that defines whether you are actually high performing or not. If an organization doubles their turnover year on year for, for three years, who's to say that, you know, either of those is more or less successful. So it's, it's, you've got to kind of look at it in a slightly more relative way. I think, you know, it's, it's because you can't compare yourself to uh, you know, to an organization that has a very different resource base or how, you know, it, you've got to look at it. And so the only way of doing that is rather than from an absolute numbers point of view is to say, how much progress have we made? How much have we driven forward? You know, how, how much have we solved problems how, and, and so on. One thing that gets it interesting about football is, you know, in the corporate world, we talk about goals a lot. Goals are clearly the essence of the game in football. Presumably the scorers are seen as the heroes, mostly the strikers, appreciate defenders, and even occasionally goalkeepers. I always remember Steve Grizovic. <laughs> Showing my age. Here. Back a couple of years, I remember him though, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, obviously the guy who scores the goal, or the guy who scores the goal, is seen as the hero. Um, but there's a massive team effort behind them. How, how do you make the, the rest of the team feel that they're part of that? I guess that is it's the elixir. It's the, it's, the, it's the challenge that a lot of organizations face. You know, when, you, when you're looking at a business as well, when you've got the people that are at the coalface, the front line almost, versus those that are in the background. You know, how do, how do you help those people to understand that they are of you know, real value and without them, the wheels of the organization don't turn? So it's, I think that comes down to having it as many things. And it's the way that, that, that those people are led. It's how they're inspired and engaged with, I think, also a, a real sense of purpose and a unity of purpose across any particular group. And, and also the logical engagement with that. So people often talk about, 
you know, engagement within an organization and, and, and you've got to have a, a, you know, a real collective sense of purpose that people can emotively engage with. And that is hugely important. And I, I work a lot on that with organizations, but I think one of the things that often then gets missed is the logical engagement with it as well, which is to say, how is what I'm doing right now in my role, the tasks that I've been set, how is that helping us to achieve that greater, whatever it is, sense of purpose? so that I can see logically how that helps to achieve that strategy that maybe helps us to achieve that kind of macro level vision that helps us to then therefore, you know, live out that sense of purpose that I believe in so much. So there's the, what I believe in at a very high level, but there's also what I understand and logically get at a lower level, you know, why that job I'm doing or why that task or why, and it's, the, and I guess it's the same, you know, within, within sport is that, you know, the, the things that everybody within an organization, not just the striker, not just the players, even all of the staff members and everything that they're doing on a day by day basis and how that links back to logically what we're really ultimately trying to deliver. Simon, when we were prepping for this last week, one of the things that you talked about is that you've got talented people on the team, but it's how you bring them together and unite them as a team that really makes the difference. Can you perhaps just touch on that? Rather than me trying to, I, I, what I'll do is I'll actually quote uh, the manager, uh, Sean Deitch. Um, uh, so yeah, it was quoted quite recently in a, in a book that a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine wrote, uh, actually called The Making of a Leader, uh, which is a fantastic book, by the way, that I, I would advise anybody to read. Sean Dyche said, um, I, I, forgive me if it's not quite the right wording, uh, but basically said, look, talent gets you through a door, but it's, it's behavior that will, you know, get you picked and, and, uh, and will win games and so on and so forth. Yeah. So behaviors we display that, that actually drives the performance bit. So, and, and being able to unite that group and being able to, to drive the right kinds of behaviors according to, you know, uh, you know, whether it's a set of values, whether it's a set of beliefs or, or whatever that, that or whatever is the case, depending upon the vocabulary that gets used, you know, being able to kind of consistently and, and, and on an ongoing basis drive that as well. I mean, you know, let's face it, anybody can do it for a week, you know, but can you, can you continually do that? And, and I guess, you know, one of the things that's been, that's been a real pleasure, you know, at Burnley, given the fact that uh, the manager has been there, you know, and so therefore there's been, uh, you know, he's been there for, I think, eight years now, I think. Oh, I should probably know that. But, um, it's pretty rare in football, right? Very rare in football. As, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the average is now in, wow. in football, but it's certainly a, a lot lower than that. 37 um, minutes, I think. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there's, you know, the manager has, has, uh, has been able, therefore, to have that longevity to, to, to try and build in layers over time uh, as well. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a real case for that, I think. You know the the, t the team from from my experience of, of obviously my great greatest experiences in terms of working with Burnley that as I said before I've never met a group a harder working group of people in my life you know a lot of people look at football from the outside in or sport from the outside in and think oh what a world you know it must be great you know there's this sort of reputation that gets created that they, they don't you know they don't work, they absolutely work their socks off and they have a turn, very turn up at three p.m. on a Saturday kick a ball around for a bit. And you, however much it is, jobs are good, right? <laughs> totally, totally different. They are you know, extremely dedicated, and not just from the point of view of the amount of actual hard work that they do, from from the kind of uh, affected social existence that they have. I mean, they, you know, they, they never have a Friday night. Mm. Um, 
you know, it's 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 a bizarre world that they, yeah. they work in, and and I'm I guess I'm lucky in that I I I am involved in that, but I also as because I'm sort of a, yeah. I like to see myself as 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 an internal spoke, but but I because I'm not there, you know, seven days a week like they are. I I can sort of still yeah. have a, a Friday night family life and a yeah yeah. Well, so it's it's amazing how hard they work. I, I, kind of reminds me of the old adage, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's it's a good cliche. It's funny. The harder I work, the luckier I get. That's a quote, actually. Yeah, it's a quote from Gary Player. Is it? Golfer, Is so. it? Well, there you go. Fits in with the sporting focus. And he actually said it. It's one of those stories that, and the quote that's done the rounds, and you see it in a number of different books. Yeah. You always wonder what the actual truth of yeah. the story is. The, the one I yeah. like most, okay, whether it's true or not, is that he actually said he was a child and he was practicing at his local club. Um, and two senior golfers walked past him whilst he was on the practice ground hitting shots out of bunkers, uh, and he uh, he put one in, um, and he said, and, and one of the senior golfers walked past and said, oh, that was lucky, and he said, oh, it's funny that, because the more I practice, the luckier I get, and then he yeah. proceeded to put the next one in the hole as well. <laughs> nice. Um, which I thought, yeah, because, you know, I'm a golfer, and I, I, I do like a bit of a game of golf, so... Um, so yeah, and and then that starts to hark into the sort of neuroscience of habit forming. Yeah, yeah. So on, yeah. Whether, we, whether probably, we could probably do a whole different podcast on that. Yeah, whether it's a romantic version of the truth or not is another yeah. thing. I mean, you know, these anecdotes are usually romanticised, polished over time, aren't they? But it, it it's there's a nugget of truth in there, and that's yeah. why it's so good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Talking of books, you were talking earlier about books, Simon. There's a book that I'm reading right now called Atomic Habits by a guy called James Clear and it is so so clever you really should read it it's, it's a fairly weighty book so it does take a bit to get through but it, it literally says that the steps that you take to get to your goal are as important if not more important than the actual goal yeah it, it kind of it reminds me actually of another very powerful book around habits I think it's Charles Duhigg or Dunhigg or Duhigg I think I should know that right. Uh, called the power of habit really really good book and and yeah. talks about the process towards building a habit is is yeah. really the important part of it yeah and he uses sport a lot in the book as as examples yeah yeah very good book yeah yeah so obviously we've talked a lot about the sporting world which is which is really interesting um you work with large corporates as well how do you translate all this stuff from the sporting world into the corporate world and i guess vice versa I'm going to quote another individual that I've worked with and had the pleasure, in fact, the honor of working with definitely a, a gentleman who unfortunately died a few years ago, um, a gentleman called Aki Hintzer, uh, who was kind of sought after by all of the top names. One of these incredible characters, he'd spent three years as a missionary doctor um, in, um, I believe, in Ethiopia uh, during uh, sort of periods of famine. Uh, before he ever started working in sport, he was the. He ultimately became, I think, the, the team physician uh, for McLaren F1, which was um, at, at the time he was there. At the time when that was when I met him, he was that was the role that he was in at the time. And uh, and I re always remember uh, him saying to me, and he said, Simon, it's amazing. You know, the, the principles of human performance are the same. Whether we're talking about the most elite athletes in the world, which he considered F1 drivers to be. Uh, or whether we're talking about the uh, starving, you know, uh, starving children in sub-Saharan Africa, 
the principles are the same. It's the context that's different. Okay. So, uh, and I just, it, it, it was a slight, I was sort of slightly shocked to hear it at the time, but actually it makes absolute sense. So the translation is really about helping people to put these principles into context so that it's real and authentic for them. Uh, thinking about what does this mean for me? How does this apply and how do how can I relate to this in terms of the live examples where, for example, with vulnerability, where, where maybe I as an individual do struggle, you know, to admit weakness or do struggle to take on board, uh, you know, uh, feedback. I, I do become defensive or I, I do want to protect people around me rather than actually allow them to make themselves vulnerable and so on. So it's the context of those situations that then become important. And that's, that's kind of how, I guess the, you know, the, the biggest thing is how we allow people to therefore translate that into their, their scenarios and situations. Uh, and, and also to therefore bring in other learning that, that kind of relates to it, that, that it becomes important for them uh, in that context. It's, it's um, wonderful to hear you saying that because it's fundamental to how we work because we've been on so many training courses and corporate training courses where you go and have a good day out and you learn something new and then you, you, you go back to your day job and you carry on with de- your day job versus actually taking what we do and making it really relatable to their day job in the first place so that we're putting it and we say we're putting it, it has to be into context. And yeah. you have to be able to relate it to what you're doing else. It seems so abstract. You can't use it. So it, it, it's, it's how we start every engagement with the team. What are you actually trying to achieve? Let's talk about the business, not to talk about some principles and learn about those principles on the side because it, it just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work. So to hear you saying that is, is great. Furious. It goes, the same goes really when you're even thinking about it at an individual level. You know, when you're talking about, say, principles of, of, of kind of mental application, mental strength, whether it's resilience, whether it's, you know, driving a work ethic, whether it's overcoming habits, whether it's trying to achieve particular goals. When, you, when, when, you, when you're teaching, if, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, I'm not arrogant enough to assume myself as a teacher, but um, when you are teaching some of these principles, the, the, I find the, the, the most effective way of getting it across is by actually helping them to relate it to themselves personally. Yes. The amount of stories that I, I mean, my, don't ever tell my wife and kids this, but I tell more stories about them than I do probably using case studies of business and teams because it's, it's about human relationships and, and everybody kind of, oh yeah, that makes absolute sense. So being able to allow people to really relate it to context that means something to them is absolutely key. And that goes for, for I think leadership as well, you know, in, in a more general sense and in, a, in yeah. you know, an organizational point of view, if you can't get the context right, and if you can't get, if you can't help people to relate to what it is that you're trying to drive, you, you're never, you're never going to, you're never going to connect people with what it is that you really need them or want them to do. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, really good, really good point. Sam, back to you. I just wish yeah. I was better. I just wish I was better at it with my kids. That's all. <laughs> Parenting is the hardest job. Absolutely. So we, we, we'd best draw somewhere vaguely close to a, to a close at, at, at this point, I suppose. Have you got three takeaways for our listeners on building high-performance teams? On the spot. Right, so three takeaways. You know, forgive me for the, the simplicity of some of these, but, but I'm not even for one minute suggesting that they're easy. So one, you've got to have unity of purpose. If you don't have unity of purpose. I know people talk about this a lot, so I'm not revealing anything brand new here, but there needs to be – and by unity of purpose, it's the buy-in – to it that's key right not not having a fancy statement two 
a growth mindset, but it kind of a mindset for progress, right? Always learning, always pushing, always wanting to move forward and seeing progress is almost the end in itself as well. Um, as opposed to, you've got to have, don't get me wrong, you've got to have goals. There's got to be targets and targets might not be quite the right word, but, but things that are inspirationally driving people. But if you can, if the, if getting better for getting better's sake is a goal in itself and that inspires people, I think that's really, really important because that allows you no matter where your start point is. And then the third one, uh, you guess what it is, is that you've got to have a culture where people can make themselves vulnerable in all of these different ways that we've, we've talked about, whether it's, as Vicky, you say, to be able to admit mistakes, whether it's about taking uh, you know, feedback on board, whether it's about being open to change and, and going against comfortable habits, you know, all of those things require that, 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 that culture of vulnerability to be built um, and the environment to be there for people. So that would be my three. Interesting stuff. Well, sure. It's that time of the podcast when I hand over to you to introduce hero time. It is. Yeah. And actually um, you were put on the spot there, Simon, by, by Sam, and I'm going to do the same now. <laughs> um, and it might be difficult for you, but we have um, what uh, Sam describes as hero time, which is a segment that we have at the end of every podcast, just to talk about um, somebody that maybe has inspired you, motivated you, um, it can be at any point in your lifetime or it can be just right now. So uh, have you got anybody to share with us? Yes, there are probably too many for me to share them all. I'm presuming that you want one. Um, you can give us two if you like. That would be nice. Okay, so I'll give you the classic one. may feel a little bit cliched, but I've always been inspired by my father he is my hero. He always has been. He always was. He always will be. I need to be careful. I don't get too emotional about that. But anyway, there we go. But I'm going to use a slightly shorter term one. I'm going to, in fact, no, I'm going to have two shorter term ones. So I'm going to have three, right? So one, uh, so the second one, my uncle, actually my dad's brother, uh, who has been in the last sort of six months, um, he was he's been, he's been through uh, uh, the mill with regards to illness. Let's just put it that way. Um, and then has ended up uh, having brain surgery. Um, he was inspiring in the first place anyway. I always used to look up to him uh, because of the job that he did. He was a, a, a training captain for, for uh, uh, British Airways actually for many years on 747 jets. And I just used to kind of, oh, the stories and everything that he had. But um, he's just gone through brain surgery and just the humor and humility and almost lack of fuss that he's gone through it with is just unbelievable. Very, very inspiring. And then the other one that I think would have been my one if you'd have had to tell me one, uh, just because at the moment, I'm going to say my niece, Becky, who within the last couple of years has, has qualified in medicine, medicine and is, uh, is now you know working in a hospital uh, down on the South Coast. And along with her qualifying class earlier this year, had to face, you know, the horrible unknowns of COVID, you know, because they were all reassigned. They were all working so hard, you know, just hours and hours on end and dealing with, with really not pleasant situations at all and doing it with such, again, just, just getting on with it. And I know everybody's, you know, with the NHS have become heroes over the last six months. I, weirdly, nobody's talking about that enough anymore. 
you know, just, oh, well, you know, six months ago, everybody was talking, well, maybe three or four months ago, everybody's talking about it. Everybody's sort of forgotten that. And so I'm going to say Becky Preston, uh, who um, is hugely inspiring in terms of the way that, you know, I don't think I'd have been ready to do that. When I first started working at, you know, in investment banking, I was like a little kid. I can't, do you know what I mean? I, I wouldn't have been able to face stuff like that. There's the maturity that she's faced it with is, is unbelievable. Even to the point of that, you know, every day, you know, kind of cracked hands, you know, they were having to sort of sanitize so much and, you know, just sore hands at the end of every night and then having to get up and go and do another shift the following day. It just simple things like that that I don't think people realize what, they, what all of these people went through and and some of you know many are still going through on a day by day basis so there you go fantastic no I mean and it was lovely to hear all three my sister Justine is a nurse and um I feel exactly the same way about her so that was a lovely end and you're absolutely right it's it feels as though all of that is kind of getting forgotten but it's certainly not in our minds. So it's lovely to hear that. Thank you, Simon. I'll hand back now to Sam to, to wrap us up. Well, brilliant. I think we covered a massive amount of ground. That was really interesting to get sporting perspective. So thank you for that. Really appreciate that, Simon. That was magnificent, I thought. So thanks for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. Your comments and your subscriptions, of course, gratefully received. And we'll see you on the next one. <laughs>